Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. According to Silicon Valley, self-driving cars are the future of transportation. Instead of owning and driving a car, you can just summon an AI-operated vehicle with your smartphone and have this super-powered computer taxi you to your destination. No more car maintenance, no more traffic, no more accidents. That may sound great on the face of it, but my guest today argues that shifting from being a driver to just being a mere passenger represents an existential risk in and of itself, as well as a symbol for the potential loss of much broader human values. His name is Matthew Crawford. He's a philosopher, mechanic, and hot rodder, as well as the author of Shop Class's Soulcraft. In his latest book, Why We Drive Towards the Philosophy of the Open Road, Matthew investigates the driver's seat as one of the few remaining domains of skill, exploration, play, and freedom. Matthew and I begin our conversation discussing how freely moving around in our environment is a big part of what makes us human, and then explore how shifting from being the drivers of our own cars to the passengers of self-driving cars could result in a loss of that humanity, by eliminating agency, privacy, and proficiency. As our wide-ranging conversational road trip continues, Matthew and I take detours into what things like hot rodding and demolition derbies can tell us about mastery, play, and competition. And we end our conversation on what driving ultimately has to do with the overarching idea of self-governance. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash whywedrive. Matthew Crawford, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we had you on a couple of years ago to talk about your book, The World Beyond Your Head. And you got a new book out called Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. And it's about driving, but it's about a lot more than driving. You use driving as a way to explore topics like freedom, agency, privacy, even self-governance and sovereignty. And what was the impetus behind this book? What got you thinking about driving in these terms? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I opened the book with a case that's kind of extreme. It isn't sort of everyday driving. And in fact, the book is really about mobility in general and trying to think about, you know, that how that hooks into various sort of elements of human experience. So I describe riding a, a dirt bike on a trail through the woods. So there's roots, there's rocks, there's mud, there's steep descents, creek crossings, all this stuff. And I might be going only 15 miles an hour, but I'm at the very limit of my mental ability. It takes total concentration. And when I push it, when I push it a little beyond my current skills or my comfort level, and it goes well, meaning I don't crash, and maybe even I get a little glimmer of some new finesse, I feel justified somehow. I, I feel a kind of vindication. It's hard to describe. It's almost existential. And in pursuing that feeling, I once had four trips to the emergency room in the course of 12 months. So broken bones, uh, a bunch of them. Now, to ride a bike off-road is, of course, in no way typical of the driving that we do most of the time. So it's an odd choice of anecdote to open an inquiry that ranges widely over the driving experience. But the heightened feeling of exposure you get on a dirt bike, I think, recalls you to something really basic. And that is that we're fragile, We have bodies, and there's a certain risk that's inherent in moving around by whatever means. Now, you know, if you're responsible, you do 
thing you can to minimize that risk. But my hunch and what really kind of spurred me to write the book is that also risk is somehow bound up with humanizing possibilities. And that cuts very much against the ideology of what I call safetyism, you know, where the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk appears. And that seemed like that's especially worth thinking about right now because we've got this push for driverless cars, which is part of what I see as a broader kind of shift in our relationship to the physical world where the demands of competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. So I I just wanted to think about what we're being asked to give up. So it sounds like you know, moving, moving, being able to move on our own free will, however we want with, with the environment. It's like it, it makes us human. I think Aristotle even talked about that. Like that's one of the features of human beings. Yeah, or even just the difference between animals and a rock, right? Animals get up and move. They're sort of self-moving, I think is the phrase, often for no apparent reason. It just seems to be part of being an animal means having a body and moving around as opposed to being carried passively. And there's some great psychological research on that difference and uh, the importance of actively moving in childhood development. It's when you start developing a kind of mental map of the world once you start, you know, you're no longer being carried by your, your mother. So I like that you use this idea of the self-driving car because... Um, and this is a theme that you explore throughout the book is that everyone, you've, everyone's talking about like, this is the future. Self-driving cars, the future, it's going to happen. But you highlight this survey that says that you know, 70% of Americans actually enjoy driving. So it's like they don't even want this thing, but we're told, no, it's the future. This is what people want. So who, <laughs> who's driving this narrative yeah. that people want a self-driving car where they can just sit and you know, twiddle on Instagram while they get to Whole Foods or whatever? Well, Brett, it sounds like you're you're expressing skepticism about um, you know the future has decided it. Are you questioning the future? I, I think I am. <laughs> I mean, there's this kind of inevitability that is a big part of the narrative, and I think it's used to sort of try to demoralize any kind of opposition. So yeah, it's clear that this is very much a top-down project rather than a response to consumer demand. I mean, when they poll people, people still don't trust the driverless technology. Now, in a sense, there's nothing new about that. And the science of marketing has been for a hundred years in the business of creating new needs. But I think this time is a little bit different because what we're talking about is a radical monopoly on how we get around. And I I think we'll get into that in this conversation. It's because, you know, human beings and robots are not going to be able to share the road together gracefully. So it's like we're going to have to get out of the way for them. And it's so it's going to, yeah, it's got to be either or. It can't just be, it can't be a mixture of the two. That's what's emerging, you know, from the, you know, all the efforts thus far to make driverless cars work in an urban environment. And I mean, the other thing too, is because this idea of sovereignty, like what's weird about this push for driverless cars, it's not the state, it's not cities, states, nations who are, calling for this. 
it's private companies like Uber or Google saying, this is what we're going to do. And it's like, hey, I didn't vote for that. But it's like, well, no, this is what we're going to (laughs) do. Yeah, right. I mean, what we're talking about is all of the infrastructure of mobility being remade according to the dream of, you know, perfect order that is... uh, it's really, you know, a cartel of tech firms will be, they, they will make the trains run on time. You can, <laughs> you can be sure of it. But what it means is that we won't have any kind of democratic control over, you know, the, the cityscape. Because what we're talking about is the smart city. That's kind of a necessary complement to the driverless car. You're going to have sort of sensors embedded in everything and uh, all our movements through the city orchestrated by a kind of urban operating system, as it's been called. So uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a, I mean, to, for some of us, a pretty dystopian picture, given how frustrating your current operating system might be on your, uh, on your devices. Yeah. I mean, so let, I mean, let's, let's go down this, this strain of like, um, I mean, there's so many things you can explore this idea of, of private companies sort of doing a top down. This is what we're going to do making decisions. Cause they make it sound like they're doing it for you. It's like, Oh, we're benevolent. We're going to help you. are going to be able to do these things, but there's always an angle with these guys. And you know, not only are they going to reimagine the cities, but because they control the means of movement, they're able to get information about you and use that information to I don't know, nudge you to do go to different places while you're getting shuttled in your little Google car. Yeah. I mean, what is Google? It's what it is, is the world's largest advertising firm. So I think the idea is, yeah, all of your movements will, will be surveilled. And as it turns out, your movements through the world are an especially valuable form of behavioral data for composing a picture of who you are and developing a sort of proprietary science of behavior management. I mean, this is, this is the, the, you know, the new frontier of, of surveillance capitalism. And I think what we're talking about is the transformation of the car into a device uh, that will kind of answer to the same logic of surveillance and not only that but you're now strapped in there you're you're basically a captive audience so you can imagine that be you know maybe there will be fleets of driverless cars trolling around and you can hail one for free well except it's not really free because before you get underway you're going to have to sit there and decline all these offers tailored to your unique lifestyle. <laughs> so, yeah, it's there's definitely an angle. And I mean this idea also is creepy about this. You are we already have this to a certain extent with our smartphones. I mean even if you drive, you're not in a smart car, if you have a smartphone with you, Google knows where you're at. Yeah. And because like you lack that privacy, it's like well, are you really free? I mean, are you really a free human being if you can't go somewhere without anyone knowing where you're at? Right. And you know, if you raise that point, what they'll say is, well, you know, you're free to opt out, you know, just look at the terms of service. Of course, it's kind of a fault. I mean, you don't really have any leverage. Now you can decline the service altogether. You could get by without a smartphone, right? But (laughs) the whole world has organized around 
these things. And so you would take it a genuine kind of countercultural orneriness to fully opt out of these things. And the terms of service are very one-sided. I mean, to fully know what you're agreeing to, you'd have to read, you know, sometimes literally dozens of contracts because that data is packaged and turned into sort of prediction products used to predict your future behavior. And these are traded on a behavioral futures market in real time, even as you're, you know, going through the world. So, you know, this starts to look like a kind of a new form of government more than free market or something like that. Right. But it's a government that you have no say in. Exactly. Right. What are you doing? What are you going to do? Like, you know, throw the throw the bums out in the next election? I don't think so. Well, another thing you highlight in the book about how governments and corporations have worked to modify the way we tran- you know, move ourselves, and in the process, we we lose something. You talked about you know like this idea like you don't see really clunky cars on the road anymore, and it's because or even like in driveways, and if you do, it's like oh man, it's on cinder blocks, it's an eyesore. The homeowners association is going to you know you know send you letters, um, but it's because there's been this movement within the governments and corporations to this like there's a cash for junkers program where we get old cars you know off the streets, off the driveways. And they'd say it's for environmental reasons, but then you're like, well, what's the angle here? They're always thinking, what's the angle? Yeah, so, right. So it's interesting. This started back in uh, 1990, and the first first Cash for Clunkers program was started by Unical, which is an, an oil refining company. And it was sort of an experiment. They were facing the need to have expensive retrofits to their refineries to clean up their emissions. So they tried this PR stunt where they said, we're going to destroy, well, it went like this. Anyone who wants to give up their old car, meaning before 1971, we will give you $700 and a month-long bus pass. (laughs) And the idea was that it's the old cars responsible for most of the pollution. And this led to, you know, a lot of rust-free Southern California old cars being destroyed. Now, the bigger picture here is that as this caught on, you know, in a lot of different states, and it actually created this regime of carbon trading, where sort of all sources of carbon emissions are considered uh, fungible or equivalent. What it did is it created a kind of false environmentalism that, in fact, enforces obsolescence, sort of accelerated obsolescence, getting these cars off the road. Now, when you think about all the sort of energy and material flows involved in creating new cars, as opposed to just, you know, fixing an old car, the environmental picture is very mixed as to whether this is doing anything for air quality. And I actually was involved in air quality stuff as a physicist a little bit back in 1989. So I was kind of right there as this was going on in Southern California. But the other part of this is there's this kind of suburban aesthetic of tidiness. And someone with an outdoor inventory of used auto parts is not part of that 
equation. So I actually got a letter from my insurance company telling me I needed to remove all the debris around my house, as they called it. What they meant is all this, my stash of, <laughs> of auto parts, you know, I've got all kinds of stuff. And this is a pattern where municipalities often they're acting on behalf of real estate interests against established residents will declare it a nuisance. They'll sort of harass you bureaucratically to make you get rid of this stuff. And the reason that's significant, I think, well, a couple of reasons. One is just kind of at the level of sentiment. When you're taking care of old stuff, you're, there's a kind of moral sensibility of stewardship and I mean, sentiment attaches to the things that you've had in your life. You know, they've been with you through a lot. It's almost a kind of loyalty to stuff, which sounds a little nutty, but I think it grounds a sense of the continuity of the world. And they can serve as a shelter from the relentless onslaught of the new. And then, of course, also, this bureaucratic piracy is dispossessing people of a real form of wealth, you know, frugal and resourceful people who might rely on a, a parts car or two parked out back. And again, there's, yeah, there's that sense of you're not in control anymore. There's like a reduction of your, your agency or what you're able to do in the environment. Yeah. And um, I mean, it began with good intentions. So Lady Bird Johnson back in the, uh, 60s sort of agitated for cleaning up the road and getting eyesores out of the way and it was for the most part it was a good idea because there was actually a lot of litter back then people forget that we sort of had to learn to not litter and also there were salvage yards that weren't screened off from the road so it was a beautification effort but then it kind of shaded into something a little more ruthless, namely this, you know, not in my backyard, no junkyards, no salvage yards, even though it's places like that that are kind of keeping alive the ethic of repair, which is, you know, what could be more environmental than cobbling together a car from salvaged parts that have been cast off that you're sort of foraging locally. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty positive environmental thing. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So you started off talking about this conversation, talking about uh, you riding your bike, your dirt bike, and sort of exploring the intersection of risk and safety and you know, sort of existentialism and like what it means to feel alive. But you have this whole section of the book talking about this, the history of car safety. And cars are a lot safer than they were yeah. say 40 years ago. I mean, how have, what are some of the stuff that's happened that we kind of take for granted and how cars have gotten safer? Well, the, the biggest improvements came with seatbelts and then airbags. And that, that's like, that was the low hanging fruit. And it was a massive increase in uh, the safety of the car. And then, you know, there's traction control, there's anti-lock brakes, and now sort of automatic braking. And these are slightly different in nature. They help at the limit, you know, in a kind of panic situation. But they can also have a slight de-skilling effect where you're no longer sort of getting familiar with the behavior of the car at the limits. And it was interesting. There was a study of automobile safety 
way back in the 70s that discovered that some safety improvements in the car lead us to drive less safely. And the idea is that we have a risk budget. So if we're getting more safety from the car itself, we feel like we don't need to drive as slight, as safely. So it's a kind of a messy picture when you consider the effects of safety improvements in the car itself on driver behavior. And certainly now with the sort of partially automated driving, I mean, you'll see videos on YouTube of, of Tesla drivers going down the freeway reading a newspaper or something. Of course, the fine print tells you you have to be ready to reassume control at any moment because the automation really isn't at the level. You can just trust it to take care of things. But you know, that's not realistic to expect people to do that. They're going to get interested in something else. Well, the other thing too is with with those like those sensors that tell you if you're drifting into another lane. Yeah, um, yeah. What 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 happens is like it's a safety feature, but it can actually make you less safe because instead of paying attention to your environment, you're paying attention for the signal. Yeah. that says you're you're about to mess up. And this, I mean, this is, they found this also in airplanes. Air, these, as airplanes have gotten more automated, they found this with pilots. Instead of actually focusing on what's going on in their environment, what their automation does is it trains them to just focus for the signals to let them know that something's wrong. Yeah, they call that task inversion, right? So instead of you know paying attention to what the plane is doing, you're just uh, listening for these little chimes and beeps. <laughs> and if, but uh, but the, another problem is that sometimes it's chiming and beeping at you so gratuitously that you just tune it out. So there's a whole literature. It's called the human factors uh, literature on on this problem with with airplane pilots. And and now we're kind of starting to develop a, a similar li- literature for for driverless cars. But I I think we need to get a little bit into kind of the logic whereby human beings and robot cars are not going to be able to share the road. Uh, should we get into that? Yeah, let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So there was this there was this one incident where. Um, a Google, car, a Google car came up to an intersection, and it was a four-way stop. And so it stopped, and it waited for the other cars to come to a complete stop before it went through. But, of course, that's not what people do. Uh, so the Google car just froze and got sort of paralyzed and melted down. <laughs> I mean, sort of software meltdown. And what the chief engineer who was in charge of this project, said he had learned from it, is that human beings need to be less idiotic. By which he meant, of course, they need to behave more like robots. And that's an inference that comes very easily if you think that the mind is basically an inferior version of a computer, namely sort of following rules. That's the, that's the picture of, of reason that they have here, that reason consists of following rules, and we don't do it very well. But what do you see at an intersection? Well, you see people make eye contact. Maybe one person sort of waves the other through in those ambiguous cases of right-of-way. There's almost a kind of body language of driving. So here's a, a form of intelligence that is socially realized by people together, you know, they're cooperating, they're, they're working things out on the fly. 
It's a little bit improvisational. It's a little bit messy. But for the most part, it works just fine. But that kind of social intelligence is very hard to replicate with machine processes. So the conclusion is, well, either humans need to become more like computers, which is not going to happen, or we need to clear the road of the humans to make the machines sort of operate smoothly according to their own kind of method. So that's the, the basic problem. Just two artificial intelligence and human intelligence are just, they're so different in kind that uh, they don't play very well together. Yeah, and that idea that you know, driving is a very social thing, even though we don't think of it as social because we're sort of in our little bubble. But the other problem with uh, that you talk about that uh, the automated cars are having is that every community has their own social norms for driving. Yeah. So in Pittsburgh, I think you talked about in Pittsburgh, like there's the Pittsburgh left turn. They let the, someone, you know, if you're at an unprotected left turn and there's a car going straight, the car going straight lets the left turn guy go first. Yeah. And that's only, it's like a Pittsburgh thing, but like a Google car would be like, no, it has to be the same everywhere. So it doesn't allow yeah. for like bottom up sort of governance. Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, there's a whole new kind of thing emerging in cognitive science that emphasizes that the human mind is exquisitely good at uh, predicting others' behavior. And it's a kind of circular thing where we mutually predict one another's behavior. And social norms help to anchor the our expectations of what others are going to do, and that makes that task a little bit easier. So, when you think of how exquisitely uh, fine-tuned the human mind is for predicting each other's behavior, it starts to seem a little bit gratuitous to replace all that with you know, rolling supercomputers, basically. If you look at an intersection at Rome, you know, Americans are often horrified. They, they travel to Rome and they come back. It looks like chaos. Of course, they're also kind of admire it because it's such a, you know, it, it, it's just a, such a different way of proceeding. And um, so it's very improvisational. They're not really following any kind of rules, at least not any rules that would be apparent to you or me as a visitor. But here's the interesting thing, that the traffic fatality rate in Italy is actually lower than it is in the United States. Now, if we had driverless cars, from an aerial view, an intersection might actually look quite a bit like the Italian intersection because you wouldn't have to have stoplights, right? You, the cars would just mutually adapt and find their way through. But at this point, it starts to look like we're spent. We want to spend billions of dollars in order to recreate this, the flow and efficiency of an old world intersection, which it seems like a failure to appreciate that human beings have already solved this problem, and they're pretty good at it. So let's talk about. Uh, let's get a little bit more. You know, we've been talking sort of big picture societal stuff, but let's let's get a little bit down to the more personal. So. One of the things about you, you talk about how cars have changed, the experience of driving your car has changed. And you, you talk about the, the difference between this hot rod, you know, 60s VW Beetle bug that you, you, you worked on yourself and the way it drove between a high performance and Audi RS3. When you drove those two cars, like what was the difference? What is, what is, how does it feel different to drive a modern car compared to an old car? 
Well, for one thing, an old car lets you know right away if you've done done something wrong. So, you know, there was more than one occasion when I almost rolled the bug. And, you know, it's very, it's crude, right? It is very direct mechanical connection to the road, which was makes it exciting to drive. You know, you're not insulated from the road by all these sort of forms of electronic mediation that dampen out all the uh, sort of fuzzy information that's usually coming into the seat of your pants from the road. With a, a car that's really light and primitive and everything is sort of direct mechanical connections, after a while, it starts to become almost like a prosthetic. In other words, it kind of disappears uh, from your awareness and you're just feeling the road. So think about the process of learning to play ice hockey, where initially the the stick and the puck is all very awkward and obtrusive, and you have to look at the puck. And uh, But eventually, as you become more skilled, the stick essentially becomes an extension of your own body, and you can feel the state of the puck through the stick. And so it, the, the stick just disappears and becomes a kind of transparent conduit for both your intention on the puck and uh, for sensing the puck. Whereas in a modern car, when everything is passing through electronic mediation, it means that the only way you can stay informed about the state of the car and the state of the road is through various representations. So you get these, you know, chimes and little little bit of text on the dashboard. So I had a Scion XB and for the first five years, I had no idea why it was beeping at me when I re- went around a corners kind of fast. And finally, I saw there was a little tiny bit of text that said stability, meaning that the stability control was kicking in. And I didn't even know I had lost traction because I just couldn't feel it. So, no, and I've, I've, when you mentioned that, when you talked about it in the book, I was like, I, I was trying to think back when I've driven an old car. I've had that same experience when I've dro- driven an old truck without any power steering, out any uh, anti lock brakes. Like, at first, it's very disconcerting because you're like, what the heck is going on? Like, it doesn't feel, but then after a while, you start, as you said, you start to feel the road. And mm-hmm. then when you, like, in a modern car, it doesn't feel like you're like, you're, you can feel the road. You're just, you feel like you're just sitting in a car and kind of guiding it with the steering wheel. Uh, it's a weird difference. It's hard to explain. It's a subtle thing, but there's definitely a difference. Yeah. And the windshield almost starts to seem like one more screen. And uh, it can't really compete with all the dopamine candy coming through your other screens. And so obviously, as cars get more boring to drive, more you know abstracted, this has definitely contributed to distracted driving because it's just not much to engage your interest because you're, you know, in an old car, it's your ass that's going 60 miles an hour. You're not, you're not cocooned in 4,000 pounds of plushness with, you know, the sort of elevated tank-like enclosure. I mean, cars have gotten so heavy and so enclosed. If you get in a car from the 80s, or earlier, you'd be shocked at how much visibility we've given up. It's like all glass. So now, backup cameras are required since 2018. And it makes perfect sense that they are required because we've given up so much 
visibility and peripheral awareness. So yeah, the, the, the new cars give you like lull you into a false sense of security. So it allows you to, I can look at my phone because yeah. you, don't have, you don't have to pay attention. You're not getting any feedback from the road. But what's interesting too is that while car companies have made cars safer and sort of taken the road from the driver, what they what they've had to do is they've had to artificially inject things back in, yeah. <laughs> so that it feels like you're driving a car. So I'm, I'm, I forgot which one. I think it was like a BMW. Like the engine is so quiet. I think, or even like on electric cars, they'll when you turn it on, like they'll have like an artificial vroom sound, so it feels like you're driving a car. Yeah. So so BMW and a few other car makers they actually pipe engine sounds into the cabin through the sound system. So it's like they're trying to remedy this abstraction with basically a you know a falsification, <laughs> which is a, a curious uh, sort of dynamic. So um, let's talk about you took a deep dive into hot riding culture, and this is something you do. You geek out on cars and modify them the way you want it. And in this chapter, you got really geeky trying to explain some of these technical <laughs> aspects of hot riding, but you do it to make a point, and you talk about that it's getting harder and harder to actually for individuals to modify a car the way they want to uh, than it was say 40 30 years ago what's what's changed well it's it's a mixed picture it, so there was sort of the first golden rod of hot riding or sort of golden age rather that went from like after world war 2 right up until the 80s and then electronic engine management made things a little opaque under the hood for the typical shade tree mechanic. But then an interesting thing happened. The internet happened. And now you have these technical forums devoted to all these uh, different kinds of cars. And people have figured out how to hack the software and, and turn it to illicit purposes. So this is actually, I would call the second golden age of hot rodding. People are getting crazy horsepower out of engines these days. So one thing that when you when you go really deep, like I'm, you know, this bug I'm building right now is so it's going to have let me put it this way five times the horsepower it was designed for, which means you have to rethink every aspect of the car. And um, the thing is, you can't just look for available parts. You're often you're mixing parts from many different manufacturers, and you're sort of cobbling things together. And what that means is that the parts numbers that are used for inventory are not going to help you because what you need to know is like the actual dimensions of something and can I make this fit? And that's very hard to find on the internet. You often end up, you know, it's making the part yourself, you know, if you have the, the machining and, and welding capabilities because it's just easier than hacking a bureaucracy where you, you know you don't know the part number. You, you just need, <laughs> you try to dis go to a parts counter and describe what you need and you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. You talk about how you use this sort of explore this idea that knowledge in a weird way, it feels like it's democratic, but we've also made it more medieval in a lot of ways. We're only certain like high priest of, of say gearhead like car parts, like actually know the dimensions of a, a particular gear whatever. Whereas before, you know, because you have, you can assign a part number to something, anybody can just say, oh, part number, like you could just put anybody there. And they, but like, if you really want to know that, like how big it is, you, you had to call like three different people to finally find someone who knew the size of this part you were looking for. Yeah. 
There's also this sort of opposite thing where the world of parts numbers only makes sense within some company, within their kind of bureaucratic parts inventory system. Whereas when you're talking about, so that's a kind of form of priestly authority, right? You have to go through, you have to go through the, 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 the bureaucracy. Whereas if you can express something in universal units of measurement, then you're talking about a form of knowledge that's accessible to anyone with a few basic measuring tools. And it's interesting that that's the ideal of knowledge that we get from the Enlightenment, that you know we should be get out from under the authority of priests and uh, trust our own eyes and our own instruments. And that's kind of the dynamic I see with with gearheads. You know, they don't they're not depending on the bureaucracies that that sort of want to provide things ready made. They're they're going all the way back to basics and measuring stuff and making stuff and figuring it out. And this also kind of speaks to this movement you've seen with not only cars, but tractors, where you're not really buying a tractor. This happens, I guess, with John Deere is sort of the big example. You're not really buying a John Deere tractor anymore. You're leasing the right to use the software. And so like you, it's, hard, it's becoming harder and harder for farmers to fix a tractor themselves and just use a part from another tractor because the terms and agreements of you know you when you bought that John when you thought you were buying a John Deere tractor don't allow that. Yeah, there's been a movement called right to repair. Have you heard of that? I have. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that you know uh, a lot of the car manufacturers are claiming intellectual property rights over the diagnostic software, which means that unless you work at the dealership you're not going to be able to fix it. Or if you're an independent shop, you have to pay a huge kind of huge rent basically every month in order to have access to that updated diagnostic software. So, you know, then it really does feel like it doesn't belong to you, that you're just kind of allowed to use it for a while. And that's that's a very different picture of ownership. And I think people aren't very comfortable with that for good reason, because it I don't know. To be fully master of your own stuff is gives you a kind of feeling of independence. And in, in so many areas of culture, including material culture, we're kind of sliding into this passivity and dependence, which doesn't sit that well with sort of the democratic personality as it has existed thus far, the spirit of self-reliance and the spirit of self-government. Well, yeah, I mean, a perfect example of that. And instead of owning physical books, you own books on your Kindle. You think you own them, but, you know, in the terms and agreements of Amazon, they can delete that for whatever reason they want, if they want to. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. So I, I thought one of my favorite sections is when you explore this idea of play. Yeah. And you use, uh, you know, drifting. Um, you use demolition derbies, soapbox derbies to explore this idea. And we typically think of play as just sort of light and frivolous, which it is. But you use the dry these driving sports um, to highlight the fact that play can be very aggressive and competitive. Can you flesh that out a bit for us? Yeah. So play. It's. So I rely a lot on this uh, Dutch 
historian who wrote a book about play as the basis of civilization. So he says that to dare, to take risks, to endure tension, this is the spirit of play. So it's a mix of hostility and friendship combined. So he found this in sport, in ritualized combat, in competitive dances and stylized insult trading and boasting matches. Think of the uh, the rap battles of the 90s, right? He talks about the human need to fight, and he connects that to the need of man to live in beauty. And I want to read a passage from him because it's just so great. This is Huizinga. He says, We have only to watch young dogs to see that all the essentials of human play are present in their merry gambols. They invite one another to play by a certain ceremoniousness of attitude and gesture. They keep to the rule that you shall not bite, or not bite hard, your brother's ear. They pretend to get terribly angry. Uh, I love that. And I think if you know, dogs playing resembles human play, we could just as well say the opposite, that human play expresses the animal spirits in us. And as such, I think it stands against the ideal of rational control has become so pervasive in contemporary culture. And, and play in this way, I think, answers to a very basic need. But it's expressing this part of the soul that sits uncomfortably with the contemporary taste for order. So it's subject to censure as irresponsible on safety grounds, or because it's competitive, as a threat to the ethic of equal esteem. It doesn't you know, it doesn't sit very well with egalitarianism because it's basically a thirst for distinction among the other players. So it's like this closed circle. It's inherently exclusive. It stands apart from the rest of society. You see something like this in the movie Fight Club, you know, which really revived this idea of a basically masculine form of play that is, you know, can be violent. And motorsport sort of exemplifies that, I think. It's almost like, well, I have a chapter called The Motor Equivalent of War, uh, where I'm seeing these war-like energies get channeled into uh, motorsport. And like that sort of, what's interesting, that that aggression of play, is it's just aggression. It's not about dominance, oftentimes. It's not about, you're not trying to destroy the person, right. but you you want to, I don't know, you want, you want to aggress against them because it gives you something to push against and allows you to feel, I don't know, like a, like you're a person uh, really. Yeah. I think we, we kind of confuse the will to distinguish yourself from, we confuse that with the will to dominate others. And so the thirst for distinction gets, you know, a bad rap because it looks like the will to tyranny. And I think the, the the irony here is that it's the effort to clamp down on play is itself a kind of tyrannical need to uh, control everything. And you see that, you know, for example, in sort of affluent progressive schools where you have these playground minders who are, you know, on the lookout for signs of trauma to the fragile cells that they're busy cultivating. 
In, yeah, in a weird way, like clamping down on that competitive spirit and trying to make everyone feel safe and equal, in a weird way, can actually end up disrupting like the social order and like you get chaos. Yeah, because well, Heusinger points out that play is the origins of social order. Because think about it, games have rules. You have to submit to the rules of the play community. So these rules are not just emanations from your own will. So he finds the origins of institutions historically in these sort of competitive play fields. And it's interesting, you know, I, at one point in the book, I speculate about maybe this clampdown on play has some kind of connection to phenomena like, um, you know, the mass shooter where here you have some kid who is not able to find any way to make a name for himself, to distinguish himself, but through this eruption of infantile rage. That strikes me as the opposite of fighting and playing, where you're coming up against the civilizing influence of other people who push back against you. It's sort of radically solipsistic. You had, you did this one diversion I thought was interesting. You go to something that's called a hair scramble race, and inadvertently you were able to see you you met like like the true feminist. Well, yeah, hair scramble is a race through the woods on motorcycles, and so you know before it gets into the woods, the, the start is in a big open pasture. And once you get into the woods, it's very hard to pass. So the the start is really crucial. They're all trying to get to the first corner first. And it's a free-for-all. I mean, there's wheelies off the line, people going down in the mud. And there's no authority figure to appeal to, to say, oh, false start or, you know, foul. It's just a bunch of grown-ups doing it for themselves. And that was attractive about it to me, the sort of absence of bureaucratic sort of supervision. And I was struck that there was quite a few women at these races, and some of them are super fast. And so, you know, this is a kind of rednecky crowd, right? And it seemed like there was an unforced ease of gender relations going on here that was interesting. The women just show up and race. There, you know, there isn't some entity making sure there's gender equity in the sport. They don't think of themselves as overcoming oppression. They just uh, find their satisfaction in meeting the demands of the craft. And it's interesting. There was <laughs> there was one woman. She was not a racer, but her son was. So she looked a lot like Roseanne Barr. And so her teenage son is all suited up for a race, but he's got this hesitant look on his face. And I hear her bark, quit being a fucking vagina. <laughs> and I had never heard this uh, expression before. I was a little taken aback. But I think it was maybe a saltier version of this saying that Plutarch records among the Spartan women, where apparently they would say to their sons going off to battle, come back with your shield or on it. Uh, he relates another thing where the uh, the Spartan army had gone out to fight and they got routed. And now they're running back to the city and the mothers of the city, they get up 
they close the gate against them and they get up on the wall and they lift their skirts and they say, what are you doing trying to climb back in here? And the army goes back out to fight and prevails. So in all of these, it's like the women are demanding strength of their men, you know, man up. And the sociologists tell us that that's fairly typical in the working class, that the women prefer their men to be manly. Whereas in upper middle class society, both men and women adopt more feminine norms. So that struck me as quite a contrast to the more polite precincts of society where, you know, you sort of the the meritocracy where you're dependent on these institutions and gold stars to sort of keep moving forward. And there's this kind of propaganda program of, of girl power and female empowerment that doesn't seem to work very well because it creates these very fragile young women and a kind of sexual paranoia on campus where it's all about, you know, trying to protect their feelings. So, it just, the contrast was really striking, and it, it was a nice picture of a community kind of working things out for themselves. That I think we kind of do well to keep it, you know, in mind as a, as a kind of, for a critical perspective. Well, yeah, and that, that Roseanne Barr lady who demanded strength from her son, like she was, herself was a strong lady. You probably right. wouldn't want to mess, you right. wouldn't want to mess with her. Yeah, so it doesn't, it doesn't really look like patriarchy. It looks like matriarchy. It's funny. Yeah. Well, this idea, so I want to hit on this really quick, but this idea of these races that you go to, they're often self-governed. There's not some corporation putting them on. It's just people getting together and doing it. And you talk about how you're seeing less and less of this these days because people have forgotten how to self-govern. Like that idea um, de Tocqueville saw in Americans. I, Americans can get together and they do things together without some government or some entity telling them to do that. We've lost that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little passage from Tocqueville here. So as your listeners probably know, he was this French guy who came to America, traveled around, and reported what he saw back in the 1850s. He writes, "Children in their games." He's talking about Americans are wont to submit to rules which they have themselves established and to punish misdemeanors which they have themselves defined. So he's marveling at Americans' habit of self-government and the temperament that it both requires and encourages from a young age. He writes, the same spirit pervades every act of social life. Now, it used to be that Americans had a lot of voluntary associations, things like volunteer fire departments, fraternal organizations, mutual insurers, trade associations, labor unions, where they had the habit of this kind of, you know, like the town hall meeting in New England. But at some point, that way of life more or less collapsed. And there's a Harvard political scientist who, who documented that in a book called Bowling Alone. We still have voluntary associations, but they're now usually run by salaried professionals, not the members themselves. So I described this desert race out in Caliente, Nevada, 
where the same families have been coming to the, you know, participating in this race for generations. And so at the driver's meeting the day before, they're kind of going over the terrain, they're going over sort of land use issues, because, you know, they have this relationship with the ranchers that allow them to do this and with the town. And this phrase kept popping up in the driver's meeting. It was, use your head. You know, there's no, this isn't like a certified safe experience. This is being handed to you. It's, you know, you're, you're out in the desert amidst the rattlesnakes. Use your head. And it was sort of a, a bracing idea that you would use your head and that this community would be self-governing in this way. And it's funny, the spirit of it, it's not like these are kind of vandals wrecking the desert. They have a very keen awareness of kind of stewardship, not only for the desert itself, but for the relationship with the townspeople. This is a an activity that has gives meaning to these families over a long period of time. So it's, they're basically taking care of something and fully invested in it and fully responsible for it and for themselves. And that struck me as a very much what Tocqueville was describing. But as you, yeah, you said that like we've lost that. Now we have organizations that just tell you all the rules, take care of everything and it's convenient but in the process, you lose, you're like de-skilling yourself in a way to, that allows you to govern or take part in the democratic process. So, self-government, I think you can, you can think of that in, a, in at least a couple of different ways. One is just um, self-command. So, self-government can mean the ability to skillfully control your car, the ability to temper your impatience with other drivers, the ability to keep your attention directed to the road in the face of multiplying distractions. And on the other hand, I think self-government is a question when you're talking about who gets to decide what sort of regime of mobility we're going to have. And these two different senses of self-government kind of are, they imply one another. So, for example, if we're so distracted behind the wheel they were already driving as if our cars were self-driving. I think that suggests, you know, we need some benevolent entity to step in and save us from ourselves by automating the tasks that we're no longer capable of doing for ourselves. So, I guess my book is an attempt to kind of defend everyday practices and the forms of intelligence that are on display in them if you look closely and say that in fact we're pretty good at cooperating and improvising when we're left kind of to our own devices now this is not simply a libertarian argument because one thing that's most impressive to me on the road is the kind of social trust that you see and that's not a concern you see much articulated by libertarians. So, for example, if you're leaned into a blind curve on a two-lane country road on a motorcycle, it becomes very clear that the road is a place of mutual trust. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about it. So, I guess I'm trying to understand this fragile 
thing while it still exists in sort of little pockets of daily life like driving. And, and maybe such pockets can hold clues that could guide our hopes for the renewal of social trust more broadly. Well, Matthew, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book is called Why We Drive, and uh, it's just out, and it's sold wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. So, check it out. Fantastic. Well, Matthew Crawford, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brett. My guest today was Matthew Crawford. He's the author of the book, Why We Drive. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, matthewbcrawford.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash whywedrive, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.